Good morning and welcome to membership class. I lose track of which class this is, but I think it's five or six or somewhere along there. Um, today we're going to continue our discussion of the uh, doctrinal statement. Uh, so if you want to pull those out and if you need any, we have extras up here. You can follow along for today. I also have a couple announcements just to um, make sure because there's so much going on in the life of the church right now. I want to just make sure that ladies, you know about ladies Bible study starting this week. So you can sign up for the Tuesday evening studies from 645 to 815 on Tuesday nights. Or you can sign up for the Wednesday morning schedule, which is 9 to 1030 in the morning on Wednesdays. Or you say, well, neither one of those work for me. We also have an online option where you can be part of the ladies bible study here through the internet and there's an internet group that, that you share your answers with and, and talk each week and so they're this year they're studying through colossians it's going to be fantastic so really no excuse not to be part of this uh, pick the option that works for you ladies bible study starts this week so if you need more information contact Carmen Rassi or there's information in the worship folder. Uh, also, just a quick reminder, next Sunday we will not be having this class because next Sunday all the church will be gathered together in the Family Center at 930 for an ordination service for Chris Middleman. And so that will be a really sweet time for our church family to lay hands. The elders will lay hands on him, pray for him. We'll have a good uh, uh, service celebrating spiritual leaders and Chris and Amanda. So that'll be fun. So next week, we're all together in the Family Center for that special day. All right, well, let's pick up where we left off, which I think is on the doctrine of hell. Does that sound right? <laughs> that we, we're starting at a good place today. So I wanted you to know, too, I did bring my computer today, and uh, remember how last week I told you that uh, if you go to our website and you go here to our missions, values, and beliefs page on the website, uh, if you go here to the about, and there's a mission, values, and beliefs, I don't know if you can see this. So... Um, if you click here on the About and Mission, Values, and Beliefs, if you go to that, that particular page, this has our Newcastle Bible Church exists for the glory of God by growing deeper and reaching farther. That's our mission statement. We talked about that before. It talks about the four necessary means to the glory of God, the heart of humble dependence, the head of doctrinal soundness, the home of relational wholeness, the hands of missional faithfulness, and then it has our doctrinal statements that on this same page, you can download the membership doctrinal statement or the leadership doctrinal statement. So both of those are available for download. And then you come to this Newcastle Bible Church beliefs, frequently asked questions, FAQs. And this is where all of the different questions that have kind of come out of membership class in the past are cataloged. And so like today, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of hell, for example, and so there's a question in here, why do we believe in an eternal hell? If you just click on the little plus, uh, you know, alongside each of these questions, it will drop down the answer. So you can see like each of these have a simple, short answer, 
but it has scripture there. You can hover over the scripture. The scripture will come right up and you can read the scripture right there. So it's a great study tool for commonly asked questions. It has recommended resources. So some of these are uh, links, like if you click this, it will take you to another uh, article somewhere. This is an article by Nine, Nine Marks on eternal hell. So we have some different links for further study or other resources. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that those are all there on the website for you at any time. Um, and it's a good reminder for me to kind of point you to this if you just ask questions. So let's go through this. Today we're going to try to finish the doctrinal statement uh, in our time together, but don't hesitate to ask any questions that you have anytime. So let's start with the doctrine of hell. We do believe in the doctrine of heaven as well, even though it's, we don't have a statement on heaven in here. <laughs> Doctrinal statements are often reactive to the culture. You can tell what's going on in the culture whenever you read a doctrinal statement because they're often reactive to the, um, the doctrines that are being attacked by the culture at the time. And obviously the doctrine of hell is not a popular doctrine today. A lot of people tend to... Uh, uh, debate that or dismiss that doctrine altogether. So we want people to know that, no, we do believe in hell. So, uh, Brandon, we'll start in the back today. If you can start reading for us, go ahead and read paragraph number nine there, and we'll talk about it. Where are we? we are on page four. Sorry about that. Yep. Yep, page four at the top, and it's paragraph number nine. And actually, I, that reminds me, I didn't pray yet, so let's pray for God's help. Father, as we talk through this, uh, these wonderful, wonderful truths from your word, again, we want, to, we want to worship you. Truth apart from love is, is so, um, so limited. So I pray, Father, that this doctrine would stir our souls to greater love, greater faith, greater affection for you. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The reality of hell. We believe that all those who persistently reject Jesus Christ in the present life will, after the thousand years, be raised from the dead and throughout eternity exist in a state of conscious and endless torment separated from God. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, and 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 7. Okay, so any questions about what we believe about the eternal state for those who reject Jesus? So in the previous section, we, the, the doctrinal statement calls out that they will be together with Christ in conscious blessedness. Yes. And then as, as is coming, they will be raised. Um, in the reality of hell, we have no statement about what is the state of their consciousness from the time of death until the time that Christ returns. Is yeah. there a belief within the church of what happens in that time period? Because mm -hmm. you believe something is happening with those Yeah. Yeah, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus tells a story about Abraham, uh, excuse me, he tells a story about Lazarus 
and the rich man. And both of them die. And the rich man um, is in a place of torment. And uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, is what he's, he's talking about. And in between them, there's a great gulf fixed so that no man can pass between the two. But this rich man in his torment begs uh, Abraham to send somebody to go back to his people to warn them so that they won't make the same mistake he does. So, so there's, there's that story. Uh, there's the, um, the story, of course, on the positive side where Jesus looks at the cross, the thief at the cross beside him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, so in other words, we believe that there's, there's a place called Hades, all right, or the, the afterlife that the moment uh, a person dies, their eternal soul is immediately conscious in the afterlife. For the believer, it's a place of paradise. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of, 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 um, of shalom and peace. For the uh, unbeliever, it's a place of torment right away. It's, you know, we call it Hades or um, the, the Hebrew word for that in the Old Testament is Sheol, you know, the place of the grave. In other words, so there's, uh, there's not a lot, there's some mystery there. There's not a lot that scripture tells us about all of it other than we know it's a place of immediate blessing. You know, it says absent from the body, present with the Lord for the believer. So immediate blessing for the believer, immediate punishment for the unbeliever. But the final eternal state isn't actually realized until after the, the final judgment, after the millennial reign. And then you go into the eternal place of uh, hell or what the scripture calls Gehenna um, if you're not, if you're pers- uh, if you've rejected Jesus Christ, if your name is not written in the book of life, all those whose names are not in the book of life will be put in a place of eternal fire uh, and sulfur forever. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrific, horrific thing. We don't like talking about it. I think that I understand why an unbelieving world would reject this doctrine because it's fearful. But a holy God of justice is right to glorify his name by punishing those who reject him. Good question. Any other questions? Okay. Lila, are you willing to read the next one for us? I'll try. Sanctification of believers. We believe that our daily lives must be consistent with the teaching of God's Word. That holy living is a practical living that our goal is Christ-likeness in every area of our life, that we are to be separated unto Christ and therefore separated from sinful behavior of Romans 1 and Galatians 5, that we will gladly refrain from practice in places that would hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we are to love one another fervently as a demonstration of our faith. That's great. Romans 12 and... Yeah, there's a number of scriptures there. What questions do you have about what we believe about the sanctification of the believer? Remember last week we had this... I lost my markers. But we had that chart of um, how we change and grow over time. Do you remember that chart and how the 
that were immediately justified and made righteous, declared righteous at the moment of salvation, but our day-to-day pro- progressive sanctification, changing and growing. And so here, this particular statement is saying, we believe that God's people are called to holiness. We're called to, to a life of progressive growth and change, becoming more and more like Christ. But Pastor Scott does a great job in today's sermon drawing out how we're called to become mature, called to become like Christ in our thinking, in our actions, in our speaking. You notice here this phrase, we're separated from the sinful behavior of Romans 1 and Galatians 5. Why do you think that those particular scriptures are mentioned here? Anybody know off your top of your head what, what some of the Galatians 5 or Romans 1, what some of the sins that those, those passages talk about? Romans 1, it's, I mean, the one most frequently used is we, people are exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. Yeah, so homosexuality. Romans 1 starts with this suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and it ends with this homosexuality, the sins of homosexuality. And uh, Galatians 5, same thing. You have tremendous uh, uh, sexual uh, deviations and sins that are listed among the sins of lying and uh, other, other adult idolatry, Id- idols you know, that we have in our hearts, covetousness and those type of things. So instead of just having a statement in our doctrinal statement that says we are against homosexuality, there's a statement that just says we understand that what the scripture calls sin is sin. And we are called to a life of holiness, right? And so we want to uh, call people out from these kinds of sinful behaviors, even when they're accepted by the world. Whether it's, oh, well, we just live together. You know, the world doesn't care anymore about fornication, right? You just, you're living together, it's fine, no big deal. No, God calls us away from those kinds of sins that are going to destroy your soul. So... Any questions about this particular paragraph and what we believe or teach here? If you become a member here, you're committing to saying, yeah, I, I want to grow to be more like Jesus in my head, heart, hands, and home. You know, I want to grow and become more like Christ. I will say there is a legalistic hangover in this wording here. Did you see it? Did you catch the legalistic hangover? Yeah, yeah. So that one's that one's challenging for me, honestly, because what kind of a place is ungodly? I mean, I suppose ungodly are. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, so you know, like the, the, back in legalism would define holiness as refraining from external places and refraining from external practices, but we know from Scripture that sin is a matter of the heart before it's ever a matter of practice, before it's ever a matter of place. So actually, I think where Christians sin the most, the place where Christians sin the most, is the church house. Because that's the place where Christians are most often together. And we all continue to sin. And so we have sins of judgment. So, so I, I, I would say 
this is a little bit dangerous the way this is worded here because it puts the emphasis is like now certainly there's some kind of places that it's like yeah it's going to be hard to be godly there right because of what happens at that place but the fact of the matter is jesus is a person who when he was on the earth he went to those kind of places in a way that the pharisees couldn't understand right like what and so I know I've been in some very evil places before because I was there to get one of my brothers or sisters out of there. And they had no business being there, and I went in to get them out. And so, like, the, the fact of the matter is, it's not your place, it's not your practice that makes you holy. It's your heart. And so I just want to put a little nuance to this, that the goal here isn't so much that, well, we're not people that go to those kind of places. We're not people that that wear those kind of clothes. We're not people that hang out with people who do. Like, that's, that's not biblical Christianity. Sorry, it's not. Biblical Christianity is becoming like Christ. And that will be holy. That will refrain from sin. And that will love righteousness. I listened to an interview with Andy Crouch. Okay, yeah. Wise family. Yeah. He's written a new book, and he's talking about it. And the... Um, person interviewing him had asked him the question of how do you determine what technology is okay to use and what isn't mm-hmm. and he he discussed a framework he has of asking himself the question of does this help me grow in my heart my soul my mind or my strength mm-hmm. and Good. so he can be on a zoom call using the internet and a computer and electricity and using all these technologies but participating in a discussion that helps him grow in those things. Or he could mindlessly um, use the same technology to just consume YouTube and its algorithm all day. Right, right. But those have very different results on whether or not yeah. it helps him grow in his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. And I, I found that a very helpful framework. Yes. Um, wherever we are, or whatever we're doing, mm-hmm. is are we engaged in an activity that is contributing to our yes. growth in that way? Yep. Good. Okay. Let's skip back over to number 10 on the other page. Todd, if you want to do that, we'll do baptism and communion. That's very um, exciting because today we're celebrating communion at Newcastle. So uh, Todd, start us over on ordinances of the church with baptism. Uh, We believe in baptism by immersion of believers upon the confession of faith in Christ as personal Savior, representing their identification with Him in his death and resurrection, and the putting away of sin and rising to a new life in Christ Jesus. So, uh, we practice a baptism by immersion, but we've also practiced baptism by pouring. We had a situation several years ago where we had an elderly gentleman who was uh, uh, desiring to be baptized, and uh, his doctor had said because of medical reasons he could not be immersed, just because he could not be submerged in water for medical reasons. Okay, we don't put the emphasis on the syllable of the mode, on whether you're sprinkled, whether you're poured, whether you're immersed. We practice immersion. We think that pictures the point of baptism most faithful to the text. But what we put our emphasis on is, is this the practice of a believer? In other words, if I was sprinkled or poured as an infant before I had any conscious awareness of my own faith and my relationship with Jesus, 
That's not believer's baptism. So we practice believer's baptism here because we believe that's what Scripture calls us to, that we are to go and make disciples and baptize disciples. <laughs> so we don't baptize infants. We baptize Christ followers. We baptize disciples, and uh, we believe, and then we are baptized. And so uh, we require believer's baptism for membership. So in order to be a member here, you, where you're publicly identifying with Christ's body, His church, you have to first publicly identify with Jesus, the head of the body. So you can't identify with the church if you haven't first identified with Jesus. How do you publicly identify with Jesus? In believer's baptism. So, I, so sometimes we think about believer's baptism the wrong way. We think of believer's baptism a little bit like a graduation. Like, you know, uh, somebody comes through their education and then they have a graduation ceremony at the end to celebrate all that they've accomplished. And sometimes we think about baptism the same way. Like, well, somebody came to faith in Christ, they've been discipled, now they're getting baptized, and we celebrate that as if, oh, that's like somehow they've arrived. That is not how the scripture speaks about baptism. So here's, I want to give you a different picture of it. Baptism in the scripture is all about identification. It's about who do I identify with? Whose team am I on? So the way I like to think about it is with sports analogies because we can all understand that. If I put on a Bears jersey, you can immediately look at me and say, he's a Bears fan, right? He loves the Bears. If I put on a Bears jersey, I'm identifying publicly with my, my affection or my loyalty to that team. So believer's baptism is publicly identifying with Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. This is why we don't baptize young children as a, matter of, as a matter of practice here. It's not that young children can't be saved. Remember, baptism is not about salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. So why do we encourage young children to wait before they're baptized? Because we understand baptism is a public identification with Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. Baptism is like putting on a bear's jersey and walking into Lambeau Field, which if you don't know is the, the arena of the bear's rival, the Green Bay Packers, right? So if you put on a bear's jersey and you walk into Lambeau Field, you are going public for the enemy. And to be socially mature enough to say, I count the cost of my public identification with Christ, and I'm willing to go public to say, I'm on Jesus' team, even if it costs me everything. That's what believer's baptism is. That's what believer's baptism was in the New Testament. When they were getting baptized in the temple courts, when they were baptized, they were going public for Jesus in a way that could cost them their lives, could cost them their economy. So believer's baptism is not a graduation ceremony. It is a public declaration to the world that says, I'm on Jesus's team no matter what it costs me. 
and I am willing to publicly identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we practice immersion, because it kind of pictures that most faithfully, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I'm, I'm willing to say, not for my salvation, but for my identity, that I am a Christ follower. How, um, I agree with everything you're saying. How do you protect from the idea that it is only about identification? Mm -hmm. Because in scripture we have this group of people who Paul says, you've been baptized, yes. took on the identity, yes. but they haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit. Right, yes. Um, and so they had a limiting view of what their baptism was. Mm -hmm. They saw mm -hmm. this, just we're going to put some kind of mark on us. Yes but they didn't understand that it wasn't only the physical act. There is something yes. mysterious and wonderful about what God does in the midst of that identification Yeah, that isn't earned through it. Yes, it's a great question. So uh, in the scripture, there's actually seven different kinds of baptisms mentioned, which kind of blows my mind when I first saw this. So there's a baptism of Moses. There's a baptism of fire. There's a baptism of... Um, of, of believers baptism there's a baptism of the spirit there's a baptism there's actually seven i can't come off the top of my head but there's actually seven different baptisms in fact if you go on our website and just uh i'll, I'll tell you what i do um, and maybe you guys can benefit from this as well but if you go on our website and you go to resources Click on resources, and there's a wonderful search box on resources, and you just type in baptism here and hit search. It'll bring up all the different resources that we have on baptism, the sermons that we've had on baptism, the, the uh, podcasts we've had on baptism, whatever. So it's helpful. So I could go here, for example, type up baptism, and we probably could find the sermon where I, I taught through all different... Uh, uh, seven kinds of baptism. We'd have to, and it's actually, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. So here's a sermon I did on believer's baptism. But here, actually, this sermon here, which is Jesus' baptism, it's, uh, you wouldn't know it by, uh, without knowing more information. That's the particular message I taught with Jesus' baptism. I taught through the seven different kinds of baptism. But there's different um, resources here on baptism. The short answer to your question, Brandon, is um, that uh, I don't think that, uh, I think when you understand all seven different kinds of baptism and, and the Spirit is given to us at, um, at salvation. So we receive the Spirit, we're baptized into the Spirit, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks about this. We're baptized into the Spirit the moment we are saved. Romans 6 talks about this. We're baptized into the Spirit the moment we are saved. So the dry baptism of Spirit baptism, I do not believe is linked with the wet baptism of believer's baptism. So what happened in Acts 19, when you have these folks who had been baptized in a wet baptism, but they weren't truly saved yet, they didn't understand salvation yet. Then they were, they were taught the gospel more clearly. Then they were baptized. Then they received the Spirit because it was connected with their true salvation, different from the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. 
not a not a so I think it's, it's I ask that because of the church tradition I grew up in yeah where I think baptism borders on a, a works yeah that we complete and so as I became an adult and started to wrestle with that yeah and then had formerly been in a church that practiced it very differently right and trying to understand these are polar ends yeah is there somewhere closer to the middle of all this that you know, yeah. instead of us being afraid to present it as a work <clears throat> right. or presenting it as a work, where is, where is it lay? Does it maybe lay? It's, it's a good question. I'm sure it lays in the, in the middle somewhere. Um, I think, yeah, I grew up in a tradition similar perhaps where, where baptism was kind of a sacrament. It was something that actually gave grace. It was something that actually made me more spiritual in some way. It gave me some benefits. I don't see that actually in scripture. I, I don't, believer's baptism. I don't think believer's baptism, I think it's a public identification with Christ that um, uh, for, mostly for the benefit of the world, um, even more than for the benefit of the church. So some of the ways that we practice baptism today culturally has kind of been, has muted its purpose. We keep it kind of a holy huddle and it's, the world doesn't even know that it's happening. You know, it's not not necessarily God's design. So, yeah. Question on that: It's not necessarily about baptism, but at the end of that, it's rising to a new life in Christ Jesus. Is there a difference in the meaning when he's referred to as Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ? Good question. So, um, Christ literally is the the name for Messiah. So, Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Um, Jesus, of course, is the name for Savior. So, so you have, um, it can be said both ways. Sometimes we almost say Jesus Christ as if Christ was his last name. You know, it's like Kevin Souter, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, it's like, but actually, uh, when I'm thinking about it, I, you'll notice I'm careful to say Jesus the Christ. Because when you say Jesus Christ, it's, a, it's an abbreviation for Jesus the Christ. So Christ means Messiah. So it's the Messiah Jesus or Jesus the Messiah. Either way works in our language. But um, yeah, it's not his last name. But you'll notice. It sounds better. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll notice we're not consistent in here. Like in, in, in the reality of hell up above, it says we reject Jesus Christ. And then it's raising to a new life in Christ Jesus. You know, I mean, we just, so it's, you can use it either way. But Christ means Messiah or the anointed one. So Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Okay, uh, Janice, you want to read the next one? The ordinances of the church communion. We believe in the observance of the Lord's Supper to be kept by the believer, representing the shed blood and broken body of our Lord for our redemption. So uh, we practice the Lord's Supper, or what's called communion, um, every other month on the first Sunday. The scripture just says, do it regularly. It doesn't demand a certain frequency or, you know, a, a certain rhythm. So there's kind of this tension. You want to do it as, as regular as you can without doing it so often that it loses its meaning. And so what that has meant for us here is we do it every other month on the first Sunday of the month. 
So today is Communion Sunday, and we try to do that. There's other special Sundays throughout the year. A lot of times we'll do a communion as part of our Good Friday service, for example. So there's different Sundays we might pull out kind of a special opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, But any questions about what we believe or teach about communion? Scott does a really good job today uh, explaining this, but... I grew up in a tradition where we only, we only did communion once a year, and that's not wrong, whatever, that's just what it was. So uh, it was once a year, but because it was only once a year, it was, it was really a big deal. Like it was, um, you, everybody was self-examining themselves very, very seriously for the month leading up to it. Um, there was a very, it was a very sober there was no celebration to it at all in my tradition. It was all very, very sober and severe. And in fact, so much so that there would be people that would come on Communion Sunday and would be visibly disturbed and not partake because they, weren't, they didn't think they were worthy enough. They, 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 hadn't, they hadn't got enough things figured out yet. They hadn't got it right yet. Because there's strong warnings about taking communion unworthily in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that if you take it in the wrong manner, you can bring judgment on yourselves. And those, that was really emphasized in my tradition growing up. And so that misses the entire point. That misses the entire point. Communion should be a time of celebration. <laughs> Communion should be a time where we're focusing on what Jesus has done for unworthy sinners like us. We are all unworthy. We don't, none of us deserve to be part of God's family, but Jesus saved us. It's just amazing. So what it means to come in an unworthy manner means to come with a haughty spirit that's divisive and doesn't care about the body at all and is selfish and comes and wants to use other people for my good. Don't do that. That's what was happening in 1 Corinthians 11. That's very unworthy. That's not consistent. That's not fitting. That's not appropriate for somebody who's celebrating all that Christ has done for us in grace. So come, so communion is a time to celebrate what Jesus has done for me that I never deserved. Not a time for me. It's the humbleness more. Yes. That's how I see it because of the Lutherans. Yeah. And I have to say, I do miss going up to an altar and bending down and giving yeah. the recognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and those things, those traditions are... Humbleness. Yeah. To me, more than a celebration. Yeah. It should be a humbleness. Yeah. Just like on Good Friday and that. Yeah. It should be a time of reflection of the price that Mm -hmm. Christ has paid for you. Yes. Jesus has paid. And I think there is a time. Mm -hmm. I think different. Yeah. I think there's a time that we need to humble yeah. He's humbled me all through my walk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. You know, and, and it's good for me to hear that because, see, I probably overreact to my tradition. <laughs> we need the balance, right, of both. So for sure, you see that, that humility of gratitude, that humbleness of, of you know, con- consecration. Yeah. That's humility. Yeah. But then you also see that the, 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 the praise side and the celebration side too, right? When he says, um, the next time I'm going to eat this with you will be in the kingdom. 
you know. And this is the new covenant. This this is the promise. Yeah, and so it's like it's kind of both and. Yeah. So it's a great way to kind of. It's personal, but it's 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 you're bringing up the balance of it. Like like the Lord's table should be a time of humble gratitude and eager expectation. You know, like both and. It should be balanced in that way. Yes. Yeah. But you need the other before yeah. you get to Easter. You need Good Friday before you can celebrate resurrection. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And to be born again, you have to really humble yourself. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, I agree. And open up to him. That's yeah. when you get born again. Amen. It was for me. And that's, that that's that what the scripture does. Yeah. At 14 as a Lutheran. I got baptized, you know, yeah. sprinkling. Yeah. But I felt that God was looking after me then. But it seemed like at 30, I wanted more. Hmm. I wanted all that he had. Yeah. And I was listening to Vernon McGee, yeah. Dr. Dunn, a Presbyterian. Yeah. And they were on fire. They were. <laughs> Praise God, and that is I awesome. That. And so then, yeah. you just ask. Yeah. And He will come in. He will give you all. If you, He, he knows your heart. And if I you love reach that. that point, then. Preach it. That's good, sister. I'm telling you, that is good news. Because that's the testimony of God's salvation. Right. And that's how He saves souls. And He's so good. I rejoice in what He did with you. In your life, I, I celebrate. Too. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. Were you gonna say something too? Um, I don't recall from the previous communion Sunday. Do is the practice here? Do you give guidance in terms of um, identification through baptism and participation in communion? That is a common thing. Yeah, yeah. We we don't usually identify it with baptism. We just usually we say if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate. Um, uh, sometimes we say it from the backside, like if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, just observe, you know, just don't, uh, it's hard, th- this ceremony has no benefit for you if, if it's not representing uh, eternal reality that's already true in your heart. Um, I ask because my, my mother-in-law grew up in a tradition where she was sprinkled and she believes that that was her true baptism. Sure. She attended a church with us the church I grew up in, um, who said, if you're not an immersed believer, don't participate. Yeah. And she she didn't out of fear of sure. breaking some. And so I've always thought to try to understand where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she will ask me if she comes. Sure, to, yeah. Am I allowed yeah. to participate? Any, anybody who's united with Christ in faith is welcome to celebrate and uh, humble themselves in the practice of communion with us. So then do you give, is it a time of reflection? So honestly, that's something where we've, uh, we do it different ways at different times. Um, Sometimes, like today, we don't, but uh, sometimes we do. Uh, So a lot of times, I don't know, I'm going to say 50-50, I don't know how often it is, but a lot of times we'll actually um, invite the church to take a moment and pray and just confess any sin that is brought to mind or 
think about any conflict that they have with anybody else and ask God to, to bring that to reconciliation before they partake. So we will do that sometimes, but not every time. Honestly, just really transparently, our worship leadership team is, is in the middle of having discussions about communion because we feel at times like it just gets tacked on, like it just gets kind of... It's like a check the box. Some of the churches that we've been to before, that's what it seems like. They don't, like they're playing music yeah. while you're doing communion, so you can't really concentrate on what the meaning is, what you're doing. Yeah and they don't give time to reflect. So it's almost like it's just a check the box because we're supposed to do that. Yeah. So we're wrestling with that very thing, honestly, because, um, you know, we, the idea that we've had is like, man, this would be so sweet if we could actually have a meal together. <laughs> like, like, you know, this little, we call it the astronaut wafer. And the <laughs> it's just, it's so muted compared to what God intended, I think, for fellowship and community and, and oneness and celebration and reflection, all these things. And, and it just kind of gets put in this five minute, 10 minute end of the service. So we're kind of wrestling with that, to be honest, as leaders, um, wishing for more. What we, what we do today is pretty typical of, of, of um, how we do it, with the exception is we'll often have a time of just prayer and reflection that's part of it as well today it's not done that way which is fine but so yeah if you have any ideas on that you know it's just kind of how do we do this well how do we how do we make it keep it special and not just make it something that's just rote you know so those are good good challenges to have good tension to live with let's see if we can get through we got four more left let's see we've got uh, 10 minutes eight minutes <laughs> Uh, let's do the church. Back to you, Brandon. Uh, number 12. We believe that the church consists of all those who in this dispensation truly believe on Jesus Christ. That is the body and the bride of Christ. That the local church is a company of believers observing the principles of the New Testament and that its mission is to witness for Christ and make disciples among all nations. So there's a uh, common question that's asked here about what is meant by that big fancy word dispensation, all right? So um, if you go to the uh, questions on our website, uh, there's, there's a bunch of questions there about this. Um, what do we believe about dispensationalism is there? Dispensation is just a big $10 word that means an age of time or an era of time, kind of like a, a uh, and so what, what we would be here at Newcastle Bible Church is technically, like in a scholarly way, is going to be called progressive dispensationalist. So um, basically we would say that the church and Israel are not the same thing. The church has not replaced all the promises that were given to the nation of Israel. So we understand there is a future for Israel as a nation, as a defined people, someday in God's kingdom program. There's a future for the nation of Israel once they repent and receive Jesus as their Messiah, which they, in Matthew chapter 12, 
and 13, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And ever since then, the nation of Israel has been under God's judgment. So if Syria or Iraq comes and wipes off Israel off the face of the earth tomorrow, that does no harm to our theology. Because Israel right now is under the judgment of God. Okay? So God is judging Israel for their lack of faith in Christ. There will come a day, according to Scripture, where the nation of Israel will repent and receive Jesus as their anointed one, as their, as their Christ, as their Messiah. And at that day, the promises that God made in the Davidic covenant, the promises that God made in the new covenant, the promises that God made to the nation of Israel for a land, a name, a blessing, a future in his kingdom will be literally fulfilled. We believe in God's word. We don't believe that the, the church has replaced Israel. We believe the church has been grafted in to Israel's vine in this time. And someday Israel will receive and we will all be together as God's people forever. But the Gentile nations, the, the church as it's called today, is an amazing gift of God to, to share his grace even beyond the, the, the family of Abraham that he originally promised to, to save. So that's why we say in this dispensation, we just said, we, we recognize we're in this season of time when Israel's being judged and the nations are being invited in. And we're in that particular period of time. But um, certainly the church today shares in many of the blessings that have been promised to Israel. And, and someday we will all be made Christ's bride together forever. So that's what we believe about the church. We do not believe the church started at Mount Sinai. We believe the church started at Pentecost. The church started when the Spirit of God was given to individual believers after Jesus' ascension. The reality of Satan, uh, we believe in Satan. Let's, you want to read that one for us at the bottom of page four, Lila? The reality of Satan. We believe in the reality and personally of Satan, a subtle, a being, a great power who is the enemy of all that is righteous and who will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so we have an enemy. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 says we wrestle against spirits and powers in heavenly places, right? So we have an enemy named Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. He's a spirit being. He's powerful. Jude, the, or Michael, Jude speaks about Michael, the archangel, doesn't even want, doesn't even want to rebuke Satan. Okay, So all of this... There's a, there's a major issue in, in evangelicalism today in, in Christian churches in America today about how we do spiritual warfare. And you will hear people talk about um, rebuking Satan and using even formulas to try to somehow cast out demons. Michael the archangel doesn't even do that. We should not be doing that. We are not afraid of the power of the gospel. The gospel has the power of God and salvation. If you are dealing with somebody who is demonically possessed, and yes, that happens today. Yes, uh, there are demons. There, people are demonically possessed. I believe much of what is 
labeled as mental illness today, not everything, but much of what is labeled mental illness today is actually demonic possession. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you have a diagnosis that you're demonically possessed. I'm just saying the natural evolutionary materialism world doesn't have a place for the supernatural. And they have to figure out why is somebody acting so bizarrely with supernatural strength and with such different voices and different personalities and they put these labels on them. But biblically speaking, there is such a thing as demonic warfare. There is such a thing as demonic possession. And the answer for that is not some exorcism. The answer for that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we pray and we speak the gospel into people's hearts, knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. And we don't engage with demons. I've seen too many of my good friends get curious by demonic engagement. This is very real. Demons are real. Demons will talk to you. Demons have talked to me. But you, that pulls you into a, into a world of deceit. Demons are liars. Satan is a liar. Don't believe Satan. Don't listen to Satan. We don't talk to Satan. If a demon talks to me, I talk to the person. I say, you know, Kevin, believe on Jesus Christ and you will be set free from this power of the evil one. I do, I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah talked to demons. I don't talk to demons. Michael the Archangel doesn't even talk to demons. So let's make sure that we're thinking biblically about spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 is so clear about this. We believe in the reality of Satan. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? Our hope is in Christ. Christ is stronger, better, more sufficient than Satan. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We have the hope of eternal life through the gospel. Institution of... Yeah, fiery darts of the evil one. He's a roaring lion going about seeking who he may devour. So we don't, we don't play with Satan. He's not some red guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. He's, he's very, very deceptive. Institution of marriage, uh, number 15 on page 5. We believe the matrimony is a divine institution to be entered into reverently, that believers are to marry only believers, that the two male and female shall become one flesh, that God expects us to be faithful until separated by death, and that what God has joined together, man should not put asunder. We love marriage because God loves marriage. There's no marriage in heaven because earthly marriage is designed to be a picture of an eternal reality. And when you're in the presence of the eternal reality, you don't have a need for the picture anymore. <laughs> but the picture uh, that we see in marriage is designed to be a one man, one woman for life so that when people see this marriage, they see in a better way, this is how Jesus loves his church. So your marriage is designed to be a picture of a living 3D object lesson of how the church and Jesus relate. Marriage is beautiful, but the reason God hates divorce is because when this earthly picture gets broken, that affects how people think about Jesus and his church. He's like, The reason forgiveness and grace and such an important part of marriage is because 
forgiveness and grace is such an important part of Jesus and his church. So God loves marriage. We love marriage. We care very much for marriage. One man, one woman for life. Sanctity of life. We believe that God is the creator and sustainer of life, thus making life sacred from conception until his chosen time to take it. The greatest way that the sanctity of life is being threatened today at Newcastle Bible Church is not an abortion. Obviously, abortion threatens the sanctity of life. But that is not the greatest threat on the sanctity of life at Newcastle Bible Church. The greatest threat on the sanctity of life today is hospice care. And I'm not against hospice care. In fact, I'm very much for hospice care, but listen very carefully to me. We don't have a lot of time. Christians today are going to their doctors and their hospice nurses and saying, you know, mom is 101 years old. We know where she's going. She's had a great life. Isn't there something we can do to speed this up? Christians at Newcastle Bible Church are going to their hospice nurses and saying, you know, mom, dad, they're, we love them so much. They're just in so much pain and They've been had such a faithful life. They've just loved Jesus all their life. And now it's just so hard for literal things. I've heard these. You know, my son has a game on Saturday. It'd be really good if the funeral was on Thursday. Is there anything we could do to help make sure that dad would be gone by Monday? All it takes is a little extra morphine on hospice. And you stop breathing. Just it happens all the time. Just increase the morphine just a little bit more. They're gone. There's a wonderful place for hospice. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not against hospice. But think about what we believe. We believe God gives life and God takes life. And in our American medical society, it is very easy for us to justify they're in so much pain. They're not even conscious anymore. They haven't ate for four days. Can't we do something, Doc? And I, these are hard things. Believe me, these are hard, hard things. So if you are walking with a loved one through end-of-life issues, please benefit from getting your shepherds involved. Let us help you honor and glorify God with the hard questions that come. These are hard questions. I'm not saying they're easy. There are hard questions with end-of-life issues. When do you pull the plug? When do you do this? When do you? These are hard. But benefit from the objectivity of your spiritual shepherds that want to help you honor God's design for the sanctity of life, even in how we help our loved ones die. Nothing wrong with comfort measures at all. Nothing wrong with those things, but it is wrong to take life before God does. So what happens to a believer that commits suicide? Suicide is a sin, right? It, just like any other sin, but suicide is not the unpardonable sin. So there's all kinds of sins that believers commit that are covered by the blood of Christ. And that doesn't excuse the sin. Uh, uh, suicide is one of the most selfish sins that anybody can do, but it doesn't. Suicide is not an unpardonable sin. 
It's not a sin that voids your salvation or just like any other sin. That's funny because that was what I thought you were going to say was what is affecting or what is threatening yeah. the sanctity of life. That was what I thought you were going to yeah. say. Yeah, and, and that could be too. It's just that uh, I, think, I think people are committing euthanasia today without even realizing that that's what they're doing in our culture. And so it's one thing to set up, uh, go to, you know, Dr. Death and say, okay, I'm going to, I want you to take my life, you know, and give me some drugs and kill me. I mean, that's when we think euthanasia, we think that. We don't think hospice care. Euthanasia has snuck into the church today through hospice care in a way that most people are blind to. And the doctors in our community have come to us elders in recent years and said, please, elders, you need to equip your people to think different about this. Your people are out here committing euthanasia, asking us to commit euthanasia, not even aware that that's what they're doing. So just be aware. So I bring it up in this class when we talk about the sanctity of life. Okay, I kept you a little long. Um, church is starting really quick. So uh, let me close, and then we'll let you get on here for today. But Thank you, Father, for this time, thinking through um, just the applications of your word to our practical lives. This raises a whole lot of questions that we didn't have time to talk about today. So just continue to bless us and encourage us. Help us to keep growing into the image of Christ together. Help us to love one another really, really well for your name's sake. Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here today. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.